Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. So today we're examining two verses that encourage us to love our neighbors, starting with our very first neighbors, our parents. I don't know about you guys, but the strangest thing happened to me in the last couple of weeks. As I was preparing this message, I did the normal thing. You know, I went to bed, I woke up. The first thing I did before I even got out of bed was I scrolled through my social media. I started looking at my Facebook feed. I started looking at Twitter, Instagram, and I noticed something and it really threw me off. Legitimately, it threw me off for a hot second. Everyone had aged by 30 years. Everyone on social media looked 30 years older, and, and I, was, I was really thrown off. I was like, what kind of sorcery? Like, <laughs> I didn't know if I'd been Rip Van Winkled. I didn't know what had happened. But something was off. And apparently, at the risk of giving all of our information to Russian hackers, all of your friends started uploading their pics to FaceApp. So why not join them, right? So as I looked, I saw this. I mean, just take a second and take it in. Let it wash over you. Now, that's a little creepy. Um, So let's try this next one. See? His child didn't age, but he did. And, And that's a good thing, I think. But you know, I, we just won't focus on Ben. Here I am. You know, I'm, I'm killing it at 70 years old. I mean, I feel, I feel great there. Apparently, I will become my father, who's also named Raleigh, so it's really not that big of a leap. But you know what? It's interesting. The more I scrolled through all of these statuses, the more I started noticing that everyone kind of low-key regretted doing it. Over and over and over, the statuses read, oh my gosh, I look just like my father. Oh no, I'm going to look just like my mother. One person even put a trigger warning on their Insta story. It's funny because though it shocks us that we are probably going to look like our parents as we age, becoming your parents shouldn't shock you. It's no secret that the way our parents raised us deeply impacts how we see the world. It impacts how we relate to others, our work ethic, our spiritual life, our understanding of self-care, our sense of humor, our dating and parenting styles. And for some of you, it's horrifying to think that you're going to become your parents because you've spent your whole adult life trying not to be them. Others of you have a great relationship with your folks, and you want to be more like them. You see the qualities in them that you want to emulate, and you want to do that. But like it or not, the time that you spent growing up in your parents' household has shaped you in significant ways. We can't get around that. And as we prepare to think through these ancient verses, we need to remember their original context. You have the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. And for generation upon generation, they were taught that their primary allegiance lies with their slave masters, not with their family members. So as 
God brought them out of Egypt, he also needed to get Egypt out of them. So he takes them to Mount Sinai. He etches the Ten Commandments into the stone. And because their home life was wrecked, because the way they related with their parents was destroyed because of slavery, he gives them these verses to help preserve them as a society. But they would learn it wasn't so easy. Mark Twain, the early American writer, would tell a story. A young man came up to him and he said, I've memorized the Ten Commandments so that I can go to Israel and I can stand on the mount and I can boldly shout the Ten Commandments. And Twain was like, that's great. How about you just stay here and keep them? It's funny because though that sounds easy, it's not. That's probably the reason the guy wanted to shout him in the first place because it's really hard to keep the Ten Commandments. See, the Ten Commandments are unable to enable the thing that they're telling you to do in the first place. They show you God's standard for your life, but they also reveal to you that you're broken. They don't exist to make you a better person. They show that you're not a good person to begin with. They diagnose our sinfulness. In a sense, the Ten Commandments exist to curb sin, but they also exist as a mirror, a mirror that's unrelenting, a mirror that shows every blemish, every failure, every weakness, every rough spot, a mirror that shows that we regularly fail to keep the first five commandments and the second five. Regularly, on the daily, we do not do this well. So the question we're asking the text today is simple. How do we love our neighbors? To find our answer, we're going to read Exodus 20, verses 12 through 13. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Then the next commandment, you shall not murder. The first truth we see here is that you can love your neighbor by honoring your parents. In other words, we learn to love our neighbors by the way that we interact with our first neighbors. When I was 15 years old, I went out to eat with my parents. And for us, that was a treat. We didn't get to do that all the time. And so we ate, it was wonderful. And then as my parents were settling the bill, I kind of walked outside and I listened to my Walkman listen to a little punk rock on my Walkman, and I'm getting into it. You know, I'm staring into the parking lot, and all of a sudden, this person taps me on the shoulder. I turn around, and it's someone in a uniform. He's got a buzz cut, and he says, <clears throat> he kind of pauses, he and it's funny because he kind of has that tone that I've only heard in youth pastors, that tone that's kind of concerned and confused at the same time. And he's like, um, nice shirt. Because I was wearing this shirt. And I know what he was thinking. He was thinking, oh my gosh, look at that shirt. 
The Corps will do him some good. He needs to enlist in the Marine Corps right now. So he starts recruiting me on the spot. And you know, it's interesting. He was probably also thinking something else. This kid is about to break back-to-back commandments. This is no good. This is not right. He needs help. And he might have had a point because I was the type of teenager that would wear a shirt that said, eat your parents, out to eat with my parents. You know, I know that this isn't the most honoring thing, but you know, that was my style apparently. I also know that this passage that we're reading, it was written to children. It was written not to parents, but to their kids. And the term honor here literally means to give weight, to show deference to your parents, to show the appropriate respect due to them because of their role in your life. And this looks differently as we grow up, right? One commentator said it like this, the manner in which respect is shown towards parents will vary with circumstances. An adult doesn't show the kind of absolute obedience to parents that a 10-year-old ought to show, and parents shouldn't desire to direct the actions of adult children in the way they ought to direct the behavior of younger children. In other words, it makes sense that a parent would say to their eight-year-old son, you need to make your bed, and you need to be in bed by 9 p.m. It doesn't make sense that a parent would say to their child in their 30s, hey, I saw you online, it was two in the morning, you really need to get to bed because it is past your bedtime. Do you know I will spank you? That's awkward. That's not really honoring your parents in a way that fits your developmental stage or theirs. The way we honor will change as we develop. So as an adult, you show deference in different ways. You send them a card on their birthday. You go home for holidays. You call them when there's a surgery. You call them weekly or monthly just to check in. You tell them that you love them. You tell them that you're thankful for them. These are all ways that we can honor our parents. But the trick is that we keep doing it as they age. In talking about this passage, the Apostle Paul recognizes its significance for the church. And what I love is that he says that this is the first command with a promise. That promise being that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This was written specifically to the Israelites who were setting up a society And he was saying one of the basic building blocks of setting up any society is honor to your parents. But there's also a general principle at play here. As you aim to honor your parents, it's likely that you'll live a long life. And you're thinking, well, what do you mean by that? Because it's through our relationships to our parents that we learn how to honor and respond to authority, how to honor other relationships. As we honor our parents, we learn of God the Father's authority. In a very real sense, whether we know it or not, our parents represent God and his authority to us. We also begin to create patterns for how we'll deal with authority for the rest of our lives while we're still children. For my parents, they didn't exactly believe in sugarcoating anything. 
I don't know how your parents were. My parents were blunt. They were to the point. They didn't hide things. If there was an issue, we talked about it. That has shaped me. That has shaped me into who I am. If it's a difficult issue, let's deal with it now. Let's not push it under the rug. Your upbringing is often the blueprint that you use to navigate all social relationships. So it only goes to figure, if you refuse to honor authority in your primary relationships, you're not going to honor it in other relationships. You'll have a boss. And you won't agree with everything your boss says. So you'll look at your boss and be like, first of all, you're stupid. You're a bad manager. You don't know how to do this. I'm out. And he'll be like, you are out because you're fired. Or you'll say, you know what? I know the laws of the land. I know what's legal and illegal, but I'm going to do whatever I want to do because forget authority. It doesn't matter. You're going to end up in jail or worse. It really matters how we learn to honor authority because if we honor it, we'll most likely avoid the pitfalls that would lead to a shorter lifespan. Another often overlooked aspect here is that we're commanded to honor our parents for the long haul. This isn't something we do until we're 18 and then we're like, peace parents, I'm out, I'm gone, done. No, it was the expectation that though it would take different forms as we develop, it needs to continue. Jesus addresses this understanding as he addresses the tradition of Corban in Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. His point was that rather than caring for their parents as they should, the Pharisees were advocating for an approach, this religious tradition that kind of gave them a get out of caring for your parents free card. Rather than incurring the financial and social cost of caring for a family member into their old age, the Pharisees were saying, you can just say everything that you have, all of your resources are dedicated to God. Well, now they're God's, so you can't give them to your family. And Jesus cut to the heart of this. He said, you're acting like you love your parents and you're acting like you're doing the right thing, but you are not. Really at the heart level, they were using this tradition to care for themselves rather than their parents. He exposed them using the law. Here's the deal. The law as seen in the Ten Commandments exposes our hearts. It shows us what's really going on inside. If we love our parents, we'll honor them. If we don't, we won't. That's the rub. Tim Challies, a Christian author and blogger, he gives several practical ways of honoring your parents at the heart level. He says the first thing you can do, forgive them. Every parent will hurt their kids. Like they, 
you will, you will hurt them and there will be wounds and there will be things that shouldn't have been said that were said. And Charlie says, forgive them because no parent is perfect. He also says, speak well of them, brag on them privately and in public, seek their wisdom, support them and provide for them in old age. How are you currently trying to honor your parents? It's going to look differently for all of us because we have had all, all had different upbringings. But here's the thing. As we think about what it looks like to honor our parents in this moment, I want to pause because this is generally where people leave this commandment when they preach it. But I think we need more. What about in cases of abuse? What does it mean to honor your parents then? Recently, I was at a Mets game with my friend Chandra Wowaruntu. Chandra runs a nonprofit called Mentari that works with survivors of sex trafficking. And Chandra looks at me. We're sitting there at City Field, and she says, Raleigh, if it's true that most people are trafficked for sex or labor or domestic servitude, not by strangers, but by family members, then how do we reconcile the way that we normally hear honor your father and mother preached in churches? Because she's like, when the survivors in my program go to churches, they are triggered, they are hurt, they are further wounded because they are being told to honor someone who was hurtful to them, someone who exploited them, someone who abused them. She's like, have you ever heard a sermon that addressed abuse regarding family members? And I've been in this for, since 2000. I've never heard a sermon that addressed abuse with regards to our parents. This command can be used in unhealthy ways by abusive parents. It can be a bully text. They can say, God says this, so you need to do what I'm telling you to do. But the Apostle Paul refutes this clearly in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord in a way that glorifies God. If your parents are challenging or telling you to do something that is against the word of God, it is against the will of God. And so, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The parameters are clear. This is not a blank check for abusers. Paul addresses both the parent and the children. It must be God-honoring. If you've experienced abuse, hear me. It's not your fault. Though your abuser may have said, see what you made me do, you did nothing to deserve what happened to you. Whether it was verbal, psychological, emotional, physical, or sexual, this isn't on you. And I want you to hear that, and I want you to know that. Your parent violated God's vision of being a parent. This was not God's desire for you. 
Eddie Koffels, he is, um, he writes for Relevant and he also hosts a podcast called The New Activist. And he says it this way, God didn't chisel the fifth commandment in hopes that you would remain or return to an abusive situation. God is love. So how do we honor an abusive parent? What does that look like? I think the first place we start is we pray for them. And as we're praying for them, we're praying for us to help me to think through this. God, help me to love them. Help me to heal. Another thing we can do is we can create healthy boundaries. Oftentimes, in experiences of abuse, the boundaries are non-existent. And so, as we're creating healthy boundaries, we honor God first and foremost, which means you might actually have to separate yourself from that parent. Even if you no longer live with them, you may have to separate yourself or create some distance. And as you do this, you need to trust Scripture over your feelings. It's easy in this time to think that God is distant or that He doesn't love you because of the trauma that you've experienced. Focus on the Father that will never let you go. This may mean that you're never physically present with that parent or that you're only present when there's a third party with you. You can also pursue counseling. If you find yourself consistently saying, well, it's not that big of a deal, it's probably a big deal. And so as you're pursuing counseling, invite others into your pain. This is why God created Christian community, so that we could walk together. And in some cases, our Christian community, our local church, knows us better than our own family. There's something to that. Because though we have a blood relationship with our family of origin, we also have a blood relationship with each other. some of us, the most honoring thing we can do for the office of parent is call the police. Get the authorities involved. Get counselors or leaders of, of the church involved. You see, regardless of our experience, we know that honoring our father and our mother can be difficult at times. It can be rough. It can be unbelievably hard. But it's through that that we learn how to love our neighbors. This verse ends by showing us how we can enjoy a long life. And I think that's intentional. Since God is a God of life, how do we promote the long lives of others? What does that look like? Well, I think we can start by not murdering them. Love your neighbor by not murdering them. This is the second way we can love our neighbor. In this verse, super terse, super short, to the point, very blunt. You know, we've got this great commandment on loving, loving your neighbor. It's got some commentary on it. You know, honor your father and mother. You'll have a long life. Then it gets to murder. It's like, just don't do it. Don't murder people. Do not kill people. And you know, though this is a short commandment, it's very easily misinterpreted. For that reason, like the verse before, we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture so we don't read into the text. So what is this text referring to? According to Exodus 21, 15, the word used here for murder 
was not seen as ruling out the death penalty for the people of Israel. It just wasn't. It's not referring to killing and warfare either because we see rules for killing and warfare in Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 18. It's not seen as solely intentional or premeditated murder either because the same word is used in Deuteronomy 4, 41 through 42 for unintentional killing. So with that said, most commentators agree that murder here means unlawful killing. A killing that is not sanctioned. One writer puts it this way, putting someone to death improperly for selfish reasons rather than with authorization. In other words, we're not free to kill people all willy-nilly. We can't just be like, man, you frustrated me. You're out. You're done. I'm going to kill you. No, the law here is meant to curb sin, as I said before. And if you kill unlawfully, there will be a consequence. We see this in Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. We are made in God's image. And as we take the life of someone else, we are not just attacking that person, we're attacking his maker or her maker. God gave us this law to restrict murder. When I was 15, my mom and dad took me to a store that in some senses was incredible. If you liked music or underground music at the time, you went to this store. It was called the Infinite Mushroom. It was kind of like if Hot Topic had a creepy uncle. That's what the Infinite Mushroom was like. You would go in and there would be drug paraphernalia over here, and there was a section in the back that 15-year-olds didn't need to go into, and it was kind of an awkward section. But then they had all these amazing posters, these like life-size posters of Pearl Jam. I was a big Pearl Jam fan when I was 15. Some of you don't even know who Pearl Jam is. Educate yourself. You deserve it. And so I'm sitting there, and I go in, and my parents were nice enough to drive me there. And then these two guys walked in. And they were weird. They went to the part in the back that you shouldn't go into, and they were laughing incessantly. They were like, <laughs> you know, it was like that creepy laugh. And I'm like, OK. And then they were just kind of walking around. And I remember having what my friend calls the uh-oh feeling. You know that feeling when you're like, eh, this is not cool. But you know, I pushed it away, and I, I didn't think about it. And then we bought the poster, which I think is still on my wall at my parents' house. I need to take that thing down. It's been a couple of years. And, and we just drove home. A day and a half later, we get a call from the Orlando Police Department. Hey, we read that you were at the Infinite Mushroom. And um, we need you to come in. We need to ask you some questions. Apparently. While we were at the Infinite Mushroom, it was suspected that those two men who were being awkward and just kind of milling around, wasting time, were getting ready to rob and murder someone in three storefronts away. They walked over as she closed the store. They killed her, and they took her money. I'm 15 years old. I'm in an interrogation room. I'm looking at the see-through mirror as I'm being asked intentional questions by law enforcement. They're like, why were you in the infinite mushroom? 
And I'm like, well, Pearl Jam. And, you know, what was interesting was my parents and I worked with them to come up with a composite sketch. In time, they would catch the murderers. Because the murderers actually went to an ATM. And when you go to an ATM, there are way more than one camera there. Even in, back then, there was like 10 cameras on this ATM. They had this guy from a whole bunch of different like angles, and, and he's doing time. But you know what? The thing that was interesting to me was this reminded me that murder is not something that just happens over there. It's close. If you don't believe me that murder can happen and in, in, to anyone that we know, just get the Citizen app. If you really want to wreck your understanding of your neighborhood, get the Citizen app. That's all I'm going to say. But even though it's close, Jesus shows us that murder is closer than we think. Like he did with the first commandment we discussed, he gets to the heart of this commandment on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verses 21 through 23, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying that this is more than a Genesis 9-6 kind of thing. Not only will your life be taken, you will be ultimately, you will die for eternity in the fires of hell. You'll face eternal death. Think about this. I mean, how often are you angry at people? We live in New York. We consider it our right to be miserable with others. We have that person who walks up to us on the train and they bump into us. And regardless of where we're from, regardless of our side, regardless of our gender, we look at them and be like, what? We flex on people and then we're like, why did I do that? Well, it's probably because it's 115 degrees in the subway right now and everyone's a little cranky. How many times have you been frustrated with the people in your church? Did you hear what she said about me? Did you hear what he said? I went to talk to Pastor Ben, and, and he didn't tell me what I wanted to hear, and that frustrated me. How many of us are holding grudges? We've all had our moments, and it's easy to blow it off. Well, that just happens. That's just a Tuesday. But Jesus doesn't skirt over it. He gets to the heart of it. He shows us that unchecked anger and hatred is no small thing, that it's killing us. John echoes this in 1 John 3.15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is real. Over the years, I've had two friends who were murdered, and I remember the aftermath. I remember talking to the family. I remember trying to put the pieces together after you go to the funerals. And life would never be the same for those of us who were close to the victims. Just like murder should be taken seriously, hatred should also be taken seriously. That's what Jesus is saying. So some of you are hearing this and you're saying, I hate you for saying that. You need to let anger go. 
Ask God to begin to heal the wound that's been festering, that's made you bitter. Others around you, you need to get right with someone. You need to talk to someone. You need to call someone after this message. Some of you are hating your parents right now. There was something that happened in your childhood, and, or you just had a conversation last week, and you hate them. You're breaking both commandments in one fell swoop. You can love your neighbor by not hating them or murdering them in your heart. In closing, I found myself in a dimly lit diner in Atlanta in the early 2000s. I'm sitting there eating greasy bacon, drinking coffee at midnight with my friend who was a local pastor named Marvin. And I just remember it was just two guys having a heart to heart. I was in my early 20s at the time, and I'm thinking, Marvin, I got to be honest. And he's like, what? And I said, I don't feel like God loves me. I feel like God is distant from me. I feel like God has salvation kind of just out of my reach. And no matter how much I pursue it, no, no matter how good I am or how, how much I try to love God and love others, he won't give me his love. And he took a few moments and he paused. And then he looked at me and he said, how's your relationship with your father? Shots fired. I was not okay with this because at this point in my life, to say I was emotionally constipated would have been nice. I didn't know how to talk about my family. I didn't know how to talk about my father because I hated my father. We fought a lot, and our last fight wasn't good. And so we kind of stopped talking for several years. I didn't really have a relationship with him. And Marvin's point was that, in a sense, my father represented God to me. I felt distance from God because I was projecting my understanding of my earthly father to him. And like I mentioned earlier, there was a connection between my relationship with God and my parents. And so I really wrestled with this. I started praying. I asked God to heal me. I asked God to heal my father. But over this time, I began to see who God was. I began to see that he actually loved me, but he didn't love me because of anything I did, but because of everything that Christ did in my place. And so over time, my relationship with my earthly father grew. And to this day, I can say now we're like best friends, but it took time. On our own, we will fail to keep the commandments, but I want you to hear you are not on your own. The Father loves you because Jesus loves you. Jesus lived perfectly in your place. He honored his earthly parents as well as his heavenly Father. He kept the Ten Commandments for you, but he suffered as someone who didn't. He suffered as a lawbreaker. Though he never murdered anyone or ever murdered anyone in his heart, he died on a cross reserved for murderers over 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. He was buried and he rose from the grave. And at this moment, he sits at the right hand of the Father praying for you as you seek to love your neighbor. The gospel frees us to address these commandments from a heart level. 
The gospel speaks gent- gently to our wayworn, wayworn souls, saying, you are loved. It says that though you've broken these commandments, Christ kept them for you. And you are righteous because of him. And regardless of how many times you stumble, we can believe that our past, present, and future sins have been dealt with at the cross. If you are in Christ, you are free to love your neighbor because Christ loves you and gave himself up for you. Let's pray. Father, for some of us, this is a hard thing to say. Father, we know that you are a good, good father, that you love us. And because of who you are for for us, because of your love for us, because of you sending your son to live and die for us, we know who we are. May your love motivate us to love others. It's in your name we pray. Amen.